Heavenly Father, you are so amazing and so wonderful to have gathered this group of people together today to worship you and to exalt you and to lift you up for the God you really objectively are. And I pray that that wouldn't be lost on us, that this is not just a normal road exercise, Father, but that we are talking to and encountering the living God who created everything in the universe and who sustains everything, including my body and my words and the sound waves that are coming out of my mouth every millisecond of its existence. And so I pray right now, Father, that that would not be lost on us. Lord, as we look at this passage in Colossians, and as we look at this man, Epaphras, and what Paul has commended him as, um, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a desire, Father, a conviction so deep, so rooted in the reality of who you are and what you did on the cross, that we are very bold, very bold, and our conviction is so strong that we don't have any fear holding us back from communicating the gospel to people who are desperate to hear the news of a God who loves them and who gave his son to anybody, for anybody to believe that they would be saved and be with him forever in eternity. I pray that that would not be lost on us today, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Grab your Bibles if you can and turn them to Colossians 1. We've been in Colossians 1 for the entirety of our existence. Um, and uh, we are moving along. This is actually the last week in our series called The Harvest. And uh, next week, we'll be, looking, we'll be starting to look at a, a prayer that Paul speaks over the Colossian church um, as we go deeper into the book. Um, but in this last week, I wanted to just spend some time really briefly recapping what we've done so far. We've looked at three verses, five through eight, and we've been looking at Paul uh, explaining to the Colossian church very briefly what the gospel impact has been in his own ministry and in their lives through the man Epaphras. And we started off week one looking at what the gospel was. We defined what is the gospel? What is this message? And why is it so important? And then we spent two weeks talking about this concept of bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel bears fruit and it increases. It bears fruit and increases in two ways. It bears fruit and increases that when we proclaim the gospel to this world, people embrace Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And more people are added to the number of Christians. But it also works in another way um, that when Christians hear the gospel, they recognize that it was by grace alone that they were saved. And the gospel message saturates their heart with the desire to know and love this God and to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and resemble Christ every single day of their life more and more. Um, and then after that, we looked at Epaphras. So last week we looked at Epaphras, and this week we're going to have one last sort of glance at who this man was who began the Colossian church. The first week we looked at this concept of him being a beloved fellow servant. What does it mean to be a slave of Christ Jesus? And this week, we're going to be looking at this concept of him being a faithful minister of Christ. What was it like for Epaphras to be a faithful minister of Christ, and what can we learn from it? So let's take a look here. In the middle of, chapter, or in the middle of verse 5, chapter 1, he's talking about the hope laid up for us in heaven that's only available, only seen in the gospel. And he, he starts out this way, in the middle of the verse. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, this hope which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Faithful minister of Christ is really what we're going to be focusing our time on today. And we're going to be asking, what is it about Epaphras that qualifies Paul to be able to say this about him, to describe him in this way? He is a faithful minister of Christ. And why, why is it that Paul is explaining this to the Colossian church? It's a very strange thing. This Epaphras guy has been with the Colossian church. He's been preaching to them. He's been teaching them. He's been communicating the gospel to them, which is what this text just said. <clears throat> why is it that Paul is talking about this man? They know who he is already. And one of the things we said last week is that Paul wants them to know that this man, Epaphras, is commendable. He's legit. He's for real. He is not trying to twist the gospel. He is a real believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and he is preaching the truth of the gospel. But the other factor here that we, we really have to recognize is that the reason why he's broadcasting it to the Colossians isn't to explain to them something that they already know. He wants all of the Christians in the Colossian church to embrace the same identity, to be a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. Paul in chapter 3, uh, verse 16 of this same book says, to the Colossian church, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So Paul is saying, I want the word of Christ to dwell in you, Colossian church, so richly, so powerfully, that when you get together, you are inclined to teach each other and to admonish and encourage each other in the word. That's profound. That's profound because what it says is that we're all called to some degree to be faithful ministers of Christ. And the word here, I need to make sure there's a technical sort of explanation. <laughs> the word minister does not mean preacher. It does not mean pastor. In fact, the original word in this translation is the same word that we get deacon from in the English language. And what it means is servant. It's a little bit confusing if you were here last week because Paul actually uses the word beloved fellow servant. And he says servant twice, but the Greek words are very distinctive. They're different in a variety of ways. And so what he means here is you are someone who ministers the word of Christ. You, um, you speak and you communicate the gospel. And what he's saying effectively is if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian at some level, you are a minister of Christ. And so what we want to ask today is, what does he mean by that? What is he trying to say? Like, what, what does the Bible say to us about being a faithful minister of Christ? At the very least, an assumption we can make just from this text is that Epaphras was not a one-and-done preacher. He didn't just have a megaphone on a, a city street and shout out. I'm not saying this is bad or good or anything like that. It's not a statement about that. But he didn't just shout out the gospel and then run and duck for cover. He's invested in these people. He's committed himself to these people for the long haul. He is faithful to them. So faithful can mean anything right at the start. It needs to mean that. He loves the Colossian church, and he is committed to their edification. He's committed to see them growing in Christ. 
Um, so at the very least, it means that. But the other part that you've probably recognized just by the language that Paul's using here is that it means that Epaphras is a faithful minister of the message that Christ wants the Colossian church to know. He is a faithful minister of the gospel. He's not changing or altering the gospel uh, to gain hearers. He, when he talks about Jesus, Paul is saying, of this Epaphras man, he's telling the truth. He's not lying. He's not mincing words. And Paul wants to, to lay it out for them because they've got other teachers that are coming among them. Epaphras is a bold witness for Jesus, and he's not cowing to the opinions of others. He's faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to Paul's own description of his ministry that he had when he's arguing with the Galatians about whether or not he preached to them the gospel, whether or not he left out certain things like circumcision. This is what Paul says. He asked the Galatian church, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, he says, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's pretty profound. Paul is saying that when I speak or when I write, I have one goal in mind. My goal is to please God. I'm not looking for high fives or applause or claps from anyone but Jesus. And Paul says that I will be a faithful minister to this message of Jesus Christ. And years into his ministry, years from this point when he writes to the Galatians, he speaks to the Ephesian elders in the, on the coast of Miletus, and he tells them an assessment, a survey of what he's done among the Ephesian church. And I want you, this is a long passage, but I want you to listen to what he says, how he describes his ministry. This is the first thing he tells them when he's about to leave for, um, for uh, Jerusalem. And I want you to hear the words that he uses to describe how he approached his ministry. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying his assessment of his ministry in the region of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus is, I was a faithful minister of Christ. I did not shrink back. He says it twice here about his ministry. I didn't shrink back. This term 
in the Greek, hupastelo, means I didn't, when I proclaimed the gospel, I didn't withdraw. I didn't pull back. I didn't return. I didn't step back from the word I was proclaiming. I am a man of my word. When I say something, when I say something, I mean it. <laughs> and so I did not shrink back. Paul says um, that this is, this is effectively, this word, hupastelo, is the opposite of boldness. It's the exact opposite of being bold and clear with your words. And Paul says, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to ever shrink back. In 2 Corinthians 4, he actually says it a different way to the Corinthian church. He says, my, me and, and my crew, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In the sight of God. So Paul, in his mind, he says, when I preach the gospel, I preach it in the face of God, the living God. He says, therefore, if I think about it in terms like of that nature, I have to recognize that it is very easy, very easy for me to speak the truth rather than to try to twist or adapt the message to gain hearers. And that's huge. That's massive. Um, but here's the question. What is it that Paul gets for communicating the gospel like this? What is he inviting into his life? He's taking a risk. And so the question we have is, what is the outcome? Because if we're all honest, if we're just honest with the nature of the gospel and the nature of the culture that we would speak it into, we recognize that it will be tough for some people to hear this. It will be a challenge for some people to hear us being faithful ministers of Christ. So what is at stake? In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul explains what got him, um, what he received from people when he was a faithful minister of Christ. He says, I had far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Paul is saying, you want to know how much I value Christ's message and being faithful to it? You want to know how much I love the gospel and am willing to sacrifice myself for it? Look at my back. Look at my back and you can tell how much I love Jesus and how much I'm willing to sacrifice my life for. We don't know what his back looked like, but if his description in this letter to the Corinthians is anywhere close to reality, we can be assured that it was a mess. His back was a mess. Infections, blisters, probably severely scarred over multiple times. <clears throat> and I can guarantee you this much. He probably didn't get very many nights of sleep that were good. Between traveling constantly and being imprisoned in stocks and then getting beat up the other parts of his life, he probably never fully healed. His back probably was a constant pain and problem for his entire life. And in Lystra, they stone him. This is in the book of Acts, we read it. They stone him so badly that they drag his dead body out of the city and put it outside. 
And as his friends are coming to him, huddling around him, probably in their mind thinking, okay, burial plans. This didn't go how we thought it was going to go today. He gets up and get this. He goes back into the city where he was stoned. So who is this man? Like what is up with this dude? What causes him to go back into the place where he was stoned and almost killed? What is it about this message that does this? The city of Lystra is actually very interesting and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at it, uh, connected to it. Um, it, it. It's interesting because this event happens to Paul, this stoning event happens to Paul in the city of uh, Lystra, which is where Timothy, the co-author of the Colossian letter, was. And so we're going to spend, like I said, the rest of our time looking at a specific passage in his letter to Timothy. These guys have a relationship together that's profound. So what happens here, just backstory, is, is Paul leaves Lystra. He goes to another town in his first missionary journey. Then eventually he comes back to Lystra. When he comes back to Lystra, he finds this young man, Timothy, who's a believer. Now, we don't know how Timothy became a believer. We have no idea really concretely how he became a believer. More than likely, he heard Paul preach. When Paul first came in there, he heard him preach and he said, I want, I want to know this Jesus. And he embraced the gospel. And then when Paul came back through there, the same man that Timothy probably saw get stoned, like completely almost killed, badgered, battered with rocks and whatever else they were throwing at him. He sees this man get up and go back in the city. He wants to go with this man. He wants to be a disciple of this man. He wants to follow this man wherever he goes. So Timothy and Paul share years and years of ministry together. Timothy and Paul's relationship is profound because Paul considers him a son. They love each other. And eventually, Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to pastor that church. Paul is imprisoned and he is awaiting execution. <laughs> and he sends Timothy two letters. And we've got them in our Bible. And I want to look at a specific passage in 2 Timothy here. Um, but I want you to know that Paul wrote this. I've said this before because we've gone to this letter before. Paul wrote this facing his execution. At the end of this letter, he makes it very clear, I know I'm going to die. This is it. This is the last letter I'm going to write. And this is the last piece of the puzzle we have for Paul's ministry. And Paul, when he writes Timothy, facing certain death, he recognizes that Timothy is about to experience suffering because he's preaching the gospel. It's going to come at him in a variety of different ways, but he wants to encourage him and he wants to prepare him for it. And so he says this to Timothy. He says, God has, not, has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but instead share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But Timothy, I am not ashamed 
For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says to Timothy, I have been a faithful minister of Christ. I didn't shrink back. I didn't shrink back. I preached the truth, and I often suffered for it. I often experienced the worst from people because of it. But I want you to know this, Timothy. I know whom I have believed. This is not fiction. I am not ashamed of him. He is reality. This isn't blind faith. There's a reality out there, Christ Jesus, and he has conquered me so completely that I will give up everything for the gospel. And therefore, Timothy, share with me in suffering for the gospel. Philippians 1.29 is actually very interesting because Paul extends the offer to everyone to do this. It is not exclusive to teachers or preachers of the gospel. Listen to this, to the Philippian church. Paul says, For it has been granted to you, Philippian church, in risen hope, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. These are normal believers. These are normal, everyday believers. And Paul says, it's been granted to you, it's been given to you to believe. Like your faith, you didn't do that. That's a miracle. It has been given to you to believe, and it was given to you by God. But guess what? There's something else that comes with that. And I want you to know it. Suffering has been granted to you as well for the sake of Christ. And... It isn't, Paul is saying here, pointless. When you proclaim the gospel, when you communicate the gospel to somebody else and they respond in a way that is not civil, they respond with shame or worse, they're picking up stones in another country to kill you. I want you to know, Paul is saying, it's not pointless. It's not purposeless. This suffering has a design. There is a reason for it. Now, the question we automatically ask, the question we should ask, is how in the how does this encourage Timothy at all knowing that that I'm going to have to embrace suffering and that there's a purpose to it if I'm still experiencing the suffering why should we as believers suffer for the sake of Christ I'm going to give you three reasons and we'll unpack them using that passage from Paul to Timothy number 1 is we should embrace suffering for the sake of Christ as a servant, a faithful minister of Christ, because our God is very sovereign. He is very sovereign. Number two, because our hope is very certain. And number three, because our God, our gospel is very, very good. One, our God is sovereign. Two, our hope is certain. And three, our gospel is just that good. Let's tackle number one. We can be a faithful minister on behalf of Christ for God because God is in control. He is sovereign. Um, so when I'm a faithful minister, whatever happens to me, whatever might come of that, ultimately I know that God is in control of it. Um, and it even says it in the passage to Timothy. He says, God gave you, Timothy, a spirit, not a fear, but God gave you a spirit of power and love and self-control. He says, Timothy, you are not captive to fear. 
You're not captive to your emotions. And as Christians, of all people, we have nothing to, to worry, ultimately. If what this book says is true, we have nothing to worry about, ultimately, because for the Christian, every threat at an eternal level is hollow, completely hollow. So Jesus says, he says this specifically to his disciples and to the people he's teaching, don't fear man. All man can do is kill you. You shouldn't be worried about that at all. That's the worst that they can do is kill you. But instead, you know who you should fear? Is the living God, who after he gets done killing you, can send you to hell. That's harsh. Jesus said it. It's almost a quote from him. And the bottom line is, what he's saying there is he's not saying, listen, you need to be afraid of God and run around fearful of him. He's saying you need to operate in such a mindset that the only one you're looking to please is God. The only one you're looking to, to be appro approved of ultimately is God. He is in complete control and he's sovereign. One of the, one of the I think, hiccups we have in our thinking about Christianity and how we work out our faith in a workplace or in another location is we feel like God is often chasing an ambulance. Like there's a problem that happens then we need to get God involved. God, get involved, please. God is not an ambulance chaser. He is not trying to figure out how to solve the world's problems. The world's problems as, as imperfect and as, as broken as, as this world is are part of the design for recovering it. We talked a little bit that, uh, about that in previous weeks. Let me read you this text from Daniel 4, 34 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar, after he was freed from being a, a beast, basically, because of his arrogance against God, looks to the living God, the true God, and he says this of him. He says, I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, every single human being that's ever existed, are accounted next to this God as nothing. And he does, this God does, according to his will, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. None can stop him or even say to him, hey, what are you doing? What have you done? Paul's saying in his text, and Nebuchadnezzar's laying down the, the, the bedrock, is we can be faithful ministers of Christ because God is in control. There is nothing that happens in this world, nothing that happens in this world that doesn't happen without God permitting it. According to Romans 28, 8, and this is where it becomes pro profoundly intense for Christians, all things, everything that happens in this world works together for the good of those who love this God. And so nothing, when you are faithfully communicating the gospel, will happen to you outside of God's permission. Therefore, everything that does happen to you, somehow, mysteriously, even in the darkest of circumstances, happens to you for your good. It will serve your good ultimately in some way. Now, knowing that speaking Christ faithfully might incur resistance and shame and suffering, we really need to evaluate really briefly what is, what is suffering? Like, what is suffering's purpose in this world? Epaphras has to go to Paul, and he has to tell Paul, hey, listen, other teachers are coming into the Colossian church, and they're teaching doctrines that are not true. They're telling them that they need something other than Jesus 
to get by. They need to keep these rules and regulations. And, and Paul, that wasn't the message I got from you. Is it right? And he says, I'll write them a letter. You've been doing this faithfully. The gospel you preach to them is faithful. He goes back to the Colossian church. He's probably not going to be received by everybody. There's going to be some people who are going to be, I disagree with you and we need to throw you out or something to that nature. So we need to count the cost when we think about this. And I want to just explore what it looks like in, in terms of the, what the Bible describes suffering as. And I want, to, I want to think about Job really quickly. Job is described in the book that he's in as blameless. He's described as basically um, completely without fault, at least in the description, innocent. Now, obviously, he's a human being, so he's not faultless, but he's defined in this book as that. And the reason why is because God's setting up a contrast. If anyone doesn't deserve to have suffering, it's this dude. But Satan comes to God. You know this, most of you guys know this story, I'm sure. And he says, hey, listen, your servant, Job, I would like to abuse him. I would like to take some stuff that he's got. And eventually he takes his health. And we have this story of Job being under the weight of this suffering because God basically says, yeah, I agree. You can do it. He could have stopped Satan right there. He says, I agree. Go ahead and, and take him. Let's, let's see what happens. Just don't kill him. And when we hear that story, I'm going to be honest with you, just a little transparent. I'm like, that's not right. This dude has been serving you, worshiping you. He's blameless according to the, the story. How is this right? And I think we ask it from a position of it's not fair or right for someone like Job to suffer. But the problem is when I dig deeper into why I'm asking that question, there's a presupposition. There's an assumption that I have. And that is that an existence without any suffering is the best possible existence. That's the presupposition I've got. And uh, it's the idea that like, especially as an American with, you know, heating and air conditioning and trying to do everything I can to control my environment, I think the least amount of suffering is the best possible experience for me. But listen to what Job says at the end of his trials. 41 chapters of pain and tears and agony. And he finally sees God and he says this, stunningly. In chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What is he saying here? Job is saying that if it had not been for this horrific trauma that swept over his life like a tidal wave, he would never have seen God like this. And I'm not saying that fall, the fall of humanity isn't the cause at the core of our brokenness. It is. But God is in control and could stop it all in a moment. So we need to think maybe in God's design, there is something greater at stake than my personal comfort. Maybe there are huge realities at stake that God is trying to press into my life, things that would be impossible for me to understand or see without me going through a valley of suffering. So I want to just, as this first point, our God is very sovereign. Therefore, we can be 
faithful because if he's sovereign, anything that we incur, anything that we incur is for his glory, for our joy, and ultimately will serve our good as sons and daughters of the king. Number two, our hope is very certain. This is connected to number one, as you can see. Paul says, because our hope is certain, because our hope is so something to be so confident about and guaranteed, we can be faithful ministers of Christ Jesus. All we need to do is see our hope as it really is, as certain as it really is, and as wonderful as it really is. 2 Corinthians 3, 12, Paul says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul says, my boldness comes out of my acknowledgement of a very certain hope. So what is this hope? And why is this hope so convincing to Paul that it causes him to be bold? Now, Paul wants Timothy to get this in the letter that we read earlier. Paul wants us to get it 2,000 years later. Listen to what he says to Timothy in this letter. He says, our calling was given to us before the ages began. Now think about that. That purpose and grace that God gave us, he gave to us before the ages began. Why would Paul tell Timothy about that? What's the relevance of that? How does that encourage Timothy? Because it shows how sure this hope really is. He is building a massive foundation of eternal significance, showing how, how certain this hope of the gospel is. God promised this hope to you before he built the universe. I want you to think about that in individual terms because Paul's talking about that to Timothy. This purpose and this grace was given to you before the cosmos was made. This is why Paul's confidence in this hope is so certain because it's rooted not in created reality, which is contingent. We see the leaves change in color outside. Created reality is contingent. It goes away, it dies, it comes back. It, it, it's, it's not impassive, immovable, unshakable, immutable. But God, however, is. God is unchanging. And if God was the one who promised us this reality before there was any kind of creation that existed, we can be confident in it. It's rooted in God's intrinsic being. Listen to what Paul says at the end here. He says, I'm not ashamed. Why aren't you ashamed, Paul? For I know whom I have believed. I know him. I know him. I'm convinced that he is able to keep what he's entrusted to me and guard it until that day. He says, I'm not ashamed because he will certainly guard me unto that day. It's been God's plan before there was even a beginning to do this. And he has been faithful, and therefore I will be faithful for, with his message. Think about that. I, this week, as you just think about the fact that you're a Christian and you love Jesus, that the reason that happened is because in God's heart, before the universe existed, he thought of you and desired you and wanted you to be in his family. Before you were even real, before you did anything good or bad, before you lived your life, he said, I want them. I want them to be part of my family and I'm going to go get them. That's number two. Our hope is certain because it's rooted in the eternal nature of God and it was given to us before there was anything, including us. Number three, the third and final reason 
<laughs> for us to be faithful ministers is that our gospel is actually just that good. That our gospel is so good that we, we can look at the gospel and say, this needs to be told truthfully and honestly and faithfully. And so Paul says to Timothy, he says to Timothy in this brief encouragement that he gives to embrace suffering, he says, listen, Timothy, God saved us. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. He didn't do this because of our works. He didn't do this because we were good. He didn't look at us and see something in us and that caused him to do this. There was nothing in us that constrained God to do this. He loved us because get this, he loved us, which has massive implications to how you can live your life freely knowing that you are loved and what you did, your performance isn't pulling God's heartstrings. He loved us. There was nothing that constrained his love towards us. Paul says that this love came from God's purpose and grace. It didn't originate from your decision. It originated from him. And it existed before anything you had ever was. And then he says this. He says, it was given to us in our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. Paul is saying that when Jesus Christ died, when this man died on a Roman cross, that something happened in that moment. It wasn't just a Jewish rabbi that had a, had a big mouth and got executed. That's not what happened. Something of cosmic proportions happened on that cross. Universes came into alignment. When Jesus died, God reconciled all of created reality to himself. He began reconciling it to himself through that one man. And when he rose from the dead, he unlocked eternal paradise for every single human being, none of which deserved it. This is radical grace. This is ridiculous grace. We will never understand this grace. It will take countless ages upon ages for us to fully feel the weight of this grace. And even then we'll be in the foothills with many mountains to climb. This is radical grace that our condemnation was not only reversed on that tree, each of us individually, but that somehow, somehow, not only our condemnation, but we are granted fullness of life forever. Listen to how Isaiah describes what God secured through Christ 700 years before the cross even happened. It says this, he will, Jesus will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This isn't fiction. This day is going to happen. This isn't a nice story. Um, this event that happened on this cross, this, his, him rising out of the tomb, rising from death to life, Paul says to Timothy, God saved us in that event. He saved us for himself and he swallowed up death. Think about how he's describing it. A veil that is cast over all nations. 
every human being dies. Period. Every single human being dies. It is a veil cast over every human being since the foundation of the world. Yet he is saying that on the cross, Jesus swallowed up death so that those who have faith in him never have to taste the fullness of its sting. Therefore, Timothy, he says, never change this message. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid of what it will bring. This is the only hope that the world has. Eternally, this is the only matter of significance. So he's saying, Timothy, our God is sovereign. Our hope is certain. And this gospel is just that good. Don't change the message. We're going to be worshiping here in a moment. and We'll be participating in communion. And uh, there'll be some folks in the back um, to pray if you feel led to pray. Um, but I want, I want to ask that you reflect on two things. First, I'd like you to reflect on, on this. As you take communion, if you're a believer and you take communion, recognize that Jesus Christ abolished death for you. He ended it. I asked my kids, I read my, this passage to my kids this week, and I asked them, like, what does abolish mean? They're like, put it to an end. And I'm like, amen. Um, put it to an end. Death has an expiration date. And uh, I want you to recognize that if you're a believer, when you receive those elements, I want you to consider that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that death for you would be swallowed up by him on that tree. All of it. An eternity of deadness he consumed on that tree and bore it all so that you would be free. You will never die really die. You will never die. You will rise on that final day because the grave was not strong enough to keep him in it. So please, as you take the elements, recognize that he bought your freedom from death and worship him for that. Thank him for what he's done. Some of us also need to recognize that we are, all of us, called to be faithful ministers of the gospel. There's not a single person that is outside of this calling. And some of us need to recognize that we're called to do that with the people that are around us, to love them with our words and our deeds. So not just serving them, which is critical, not just sacrificing for them, but to communicate to them the greatest news in the world, that death has been brought to an end. So I would, I would ask that as we worship, pray in your heart for boldness. Pray for strength to communicate the gospel clearly and powerfully to those he's placed in your life. Pray for courage, a courage that's not rooted in me just hoping that this is going to end up all right. A courage that's rooted in knowing the one whom you believe. That can happen to you today. And pray that you would see any loss, any loss, any suffering incurred, mild or traumatic, as worth it for the one who saved you for the sake of Christ Jesus. I'm going to close with a prayer from one of Paul's other letters, a letter to the Ephesians. And I'm going to ask for what Paul asked for this letter because it's effectively what um, he was telling Timothy. Um, this is my greatest need. I'm going to be real with you. My greatest need is for this courage, for this boldness. And I'll be honest, it's everyone's greatest need to some degree is to see that we have a God who's in control of everything. To know that because of that, we have a hope that is 
absolutely certain and that we would see the gospel as being unparalleled in its beauty, unparalleled in its worth. And when we see those for what they are, that it would change our hearts and our affections so that we would be bold. We would be courageous. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, you are worthy. And so as I ask and repeat this prayer of Paul for the Ephesians, that it would mean something here for risen hope for me. And so I pray that you would count it for us, that we would be spent for your glory because of this. I pray now that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us, all of us, the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know, that we might know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is, Father, we need to know this, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working, the same power that according to the working of his great might, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, above all authority, above all rule and reign, above every name that is named, Father. Lord, may we see you in this way. May we see your glory in this way. May we see the hope as being so certain. Might we know whom we believe, Father, to such a degree that it would cause us to not worry or be concerned about the opinions of others, that it would cause us not to be concerned with whether or not people are going to approve of us or not, but to love them enough to say, I've got to tell you the whole truth. I've got to tell you the gospel. I've got to tell you the whole counsel of God. You need to know this because it is vital for you, Father, for us to see people in that light and then to see you in the light that you truly are, Father. That this conviction wouldn't be compulsory. That we wouldn't say, I've kind of got to go out there to, mission, to, to be a, mission, to, a missionary to these people, but that we would instead be so captivated, so gripped by the reality that this book shows us of you, that we'd be willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.